I'm a clinician at heart, and I really love treating more than anything. And um, I think every question, research-wise, I come up with, if it's if I decide to do it, it, it always has to kind of come back to how it can help out. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. All right, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in this week. Really excited about this week's episode. I got to sit down with good friend and colleague, Professor Rich Willie. Rich is a professor of physical therapy here at the University of Montana. He's a world-class researcher, and he still actively treats folks through his own physical therapy practice. Just super generous member of the academic and the running and athletic community here in, in, in Missoula. They've been here, he and his wife, Elizabeth, friend of the pod, have been here a couple of years now, and they've just been such a great addition to this community. Rich is an expert on running injuries, and he's not afraid to ask unpopular questions and break paradigms. In this conversation today, we talk about Rich's research, but we try to frame it in terms of actionable insights we can all use to keep our bodies healthy and moving. This is a particularly important issue this time of year as we start thinking about spring and transitioning from wherever you're playing in the snow to doing some running and biking and and more dry land stuff like that. And I'll take this opportunity to interject a little pro tip of my own before we turn it over to Rich. Folks, look out for the ice. Rich recently took a tumble and broke his hand. Careful out there, folks. Even the pros can go down. All joking aside, I'm stoked to bring you Rich Willie right now. All right, so we're here today with Rich Willie. Rich, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Justin. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so you are an assistant professor of physical therapy over our whatever HHP or what? what, what mm-hmm. is the acronym that runs Reed Humphrey Shop over there? that i don't know health sciences hs <laughs> yeah who knows right yes yeah, the college of health sciences and professions that's correct that's right mm-hmm. okay so you're in your second academic year here mm-hmm. and uh what do you think of missoula so far yeah it's been great um i came in to interview a little more than two years ago and uh i mean as soon as i got off the plane i was like uh just felt super comfortable and um came on campus and had my you know the whole two-day campus interviewing and that part was great and and so forth. And, uh, you know, I just really like the authenticity of Missoula and the people here. And I think that, uh, you know, just walking around town when I had some extra days around my, my whole on-campus interview was, was great. I went into Runner's Edge, and which I think is really one of the best running stores in the country, and uh, without a doubt. And got a chance to talk with, you know, Forrest Bugner and, 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 and Mag down there a little bit. And they kind of uh, I just was really wild with them and, and some of the other people in the running community here. And since I do most of my research in runners, it was, you know, it was, it was an easy sell for, um, for us. And um, my wife's been able to come on here at the university and she works here in the college of business. And it's, uh, yeah, like, huge I, friend of the podcast. She's a huge friend of the podcast. I like saying that I am Elizabeth Willie's husband. And I think that that's probably how I'm probably better known around campus at times for sure. Yeah. It's funny. My wife, Maggie started work here, um, in May in the president's office, and I feel like in the first month of her term here, she's she knows more people on campus than than, than I know for sure, and that's probably the way it should be. So um, we share that mm-hmm. uh, yeah, distinction definitely. of some sort. But anyway, yeah, you reference the the Runner's Edge and the, the great running community here, and, and the focus of your research that we'll get to is you know, running injuries, overuse injuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and things like that. No shortage of supply of people experiencing those things in this community. Myself, uh, kind of 
first and foremost mm -hmm. <laughs> as far as coming to you with complaints. But anyway, um, I want to talk a little bit about the path you took to, to, to here in this kind of work because I think you share, probably some of your colleagues share, something in common with a lot of us here at College of Business mm -hmm. and maybe the law school or school of journalism, professional schools in that you were a, a practicing physical therapist before mm -hmm. you decided to go back and get a PhD and follow the academic path. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I graduated from uh, physical therapy school in 1999. I graduated from Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, which is uh, which is a great town. It's actually very similar to Missoula, the overall feel and so forth. Uh, I worked as a PT for eight years, and I worked primarily in orthopedics and sports medicine. I did some uh, some occupational medicine as well, so I worked in you know, factories and uh, steel plants and so forth, helping workers who are injured get back to work and so forth. Um, but, um, you know, we lived in Colorado, and I got a chance to work with a lot of injured runners, and I got a real interest in that. And so I spent some time doing some extra work, reading some scientific journals and so forth, and I was kind of really wowed at how the literature really isn't that great when it, from a scientific standpoint. Uh, and so I saw it. What do, you, uh, what do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, it just seemed like there were there were way more questions than answers okay. in the literature. And, okay. Um, I mean, it wasn't that the literature was bad. It just was, you know, maybe there, not useful to a practitioner. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't. I think a lot of it was very foundational and very theoretical, and um, some of the stuff didn't translate very well clinically. And so, um, yeah, I, I just kind of kind of felt like I was having to piecemeal a lot of stuff together for my patients. And so I started looking for, for a PhD advisor, and so I, I talked with a lot of different kind of prominent lower extremity researchers across the country. And so uh, and I ended up with Irene Davis, who's a pretty famous running researcher at the University of Delaware. She's now at Harvard uh, University. And if you've ever read the book Born to Run, yep. uh, she's in that book pretty prominently. Yes. And um, so uh, actually Chris McDougall, who's the author of the book, was coming to our lab when he was writing that book. And so I got a chance to meet him and <clears throat> kind of see like like how a book's written, which was kind of interesting. <laughs> the process of telling the story. Yeah. And I, and I think Chris is a really excellent storyteller for sure. And I think that, um, you know, he kind of put our lab in a really nice light, which was which was really great. And um so, but yeah, so I, I got a chance to do some work there and, and I really got into it. And, um, you know, the thing I've kind of always really focused in on is doing research that translates very well to the average clinician. Okay. And that's still what I always kind of, kind of come back to. I've, you know, I've, you know, I still publish and, you know, I'm putting grants and so forth, but I'm a clinician at heart and I really love treating more than anything. And, um, I think every question research wise I come up with, if it's, if I decide to do it, it always has to kind of come back to how it can help out the average clinician treating patients that, that I see personally because I still treat you know, a decent amount. And um, I, you know, I think for me, um, that going back to that term, authenticity, I think that that means a lot to me. I think being authentic as a researcher is super important. And it helps me kind of when you get a paper rejected or something. It just helps me like stay motivated for sure. Well, I think it, gives, it keeps you connected to the outcomes. You're not just sort of operating at this theoretical abstract level you know you're doing things that contribute to practice and make meaningful contributions to people's actual lives so that, that's going to be pretty rewarding yeah yeah definitely i love it and i really you know i really like um working with with clinicians and um you know i'm a you know classically trained biomechanist 
Um, that's Wait, you're I mean. gonna. That's a that's a fancy term. Like, <laughs> what does that even mean? So, uh, uh, so biomechanics is just the study of how people move, and one of the, it's more engineering than than anything. It's more engineering than physical therapy, I would say. So, it's a lot of um, physics and how people move and how muscle forces are created. And that's what you mean by the classical training? The, the classical training, okay. yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I mean, there's just there's a lot of math involved with that and, and so forth. So I think, you know, I, I, got, I go to both con- both types of conferences. I go to, you know, the, the biomechanics conferences and, and I also go to clinical conferences. We have one this week that's, that's our big uh, annual meeting. It's a, it's a massive meeting. There are about 18,000 people to go to that meeting. Jeez, and, yeah, it's pretty big. It's, it's amazing. And then, you know, I go to the more kind of, I guess, more hardcore science ones. And, you know, I don't know. That's kind of nice. I guess I, I still kind of identify myself as a clinician, so I feel much more comfortable there. But, um, you know, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, for me, taking that biomechanics knowledge and, uh, you know, trying to reduce it down to something that's useful, I think, is is, is something that I kind of struggle with every day. Um, I don't want to say struggle, but I work hard on every day for sure. And so, I mean, as you're laying out your path, you're, you know, you're a successful practitioner, and then you, you connect with Irene at University of Delaware, and, you, I mean, you're kind of on the fast track to prominence in your field. Um, you spent some time at East Carolina, is mm-hmm. that correct? Yeah, and, East Carolina And, and came to University of Montana about a year and a half ago. Why Montana? I mean, it sounded like you had the pedigree, resume, and training to, and record to take your work anywhere. You know the, the top universities in the country, and you know not that University of Montana isn't necessarily in that consideration set, but it, it's not the obvious choice. Yeah, I mean our our program is is great here. I'm our our chair Anita Sanazir is is awesome. I'm, I really love working with her, and everybody else in our department I think is great as well. Uh, you know I think our, our students are awesome, and yeah I don't know I when I when I think about the type of work I do, which is work with runners. And anybody who's ever been to Missoula knows that Missoula is just a really awesome running yeah. community. And I, I don't know. I think, yeah. I mean, I looked at some other some other institutions, and you know, I think overall there there really isn't probably a better place for me than the University of Montana. I mean, I just you know we you know for instance we did a study last spring we were trying to get some data in pretty quickly, and so we uh, recruited 18 runners from from Missoula, and they had to be able to run up to a five minute or 540-minute mile, and um, we were able to get 18 people in within three days. And I've never been able to do that anywhere, yeah. including the University of Delaware, which has a good running community as well. But, I mean, I think that... Um, so, that's, yeah. I mean, that speaks to two things. One, there's, there's just a general ability level here. Yeah, for sure. And commitment to the training for running. But also a community that embraces... You know, making contributions to knowledge and science and what we're trying to do here and just sort of like gung-ho to say yes to things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's been, I mean, it's been everything that we thought it would be and then more. And yeah. so I think, um, you know, my wife's super happy here. I am too. And I think from a life balance standpoint, there's that also. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm in it for the long haul from a career standpoint and I need to be able to you know, be able to go out and, and do some refreshing and yeah. whether it be mountain biking or cross country skiing or, or what have you, which, which I'm not very good at yet, but I'm working hard on it. Um, but yeah, but at the same time I have the ability to come here and I've got great institutional support and, uh, and work very hard and generate some good, some good research here. So I want to talk about that research because I mean, one thing that, that 
I noticed, you know, I've, I've you know, been a runner for years, as you and listeners probably know, and, and struggled with overuse injuries. And, you know, every time I go in, I've seen a lot of physical therapists, and most of the time you go in and you're told, you know, oh, your foot's messed up, or you're, you're, you do this wrong, or this muscle's weak, or, and all that maybe or maybe not is true. But your perspective on overuse, it just struck me as a little as as different. You were much more mm-hmm. concerned with load tolerance and 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 not so interested in telling me what was wrong with my body, more so like what what could be done with it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that that part of physical therapy is something that our profession is trying to move away from, and uh, which is kind of you know identifying maybe postural faults about someone that. Um, the, the way that they are kind of put together and so forth and, you know, and, and, and saying you're, you've got some bad alignment or something along those lines. And, and, you know, for me, I've kind of always struggled with that a little bit because, you know, when we think about things that we can control, I mean, that's not something that you can really control. And I think if, you know, if you have a healthcare practitioner or a family doctor or physical therapist, whatever, point out that, you know, you quote, you quote unquote, have bad knees, um, or you have bad alignment or something like that. When you're a teenager, you know, that can really stick with someone the rest oh, of their yeah. life. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of a case study in that. I was told lots of things wrong with me. Yeah. yeah. Bad feet, and you'll never do this and never do that. And you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that, and then if you get that one little niggle, or even like a full-blown injury, you will, you will always come back to that. Yeah. You will always think, well, I, I got this injury because I have bad knees or I have bad alignment. And so I think that it's really important with the way that, you know, we talk to patients about their injuries and, and, and their structure and so forth. And I think that, I mean, maybe to be a little bit harsh, but I think my profession as a physical therapy profession as a whole kind of has a reputation for being a bit of a body shaming profession. I mm. think that we, we really need to move away from that. And there's this we, you know, I think we've all heard of placebo, which is basically, you know, doing I take a bunch of placebos every morning, which <laughs> key part of my routine. Uh, you know, I think that like, you know, basically a placebo is when you're, um, something's done to you or you take something and there's some context given, meaning that, uh, you know, you're going to take this pill and it's going to make you run faster or something like that. And so that power suggestion will, you know, oftentimes make that happen. But there's the opposite of that too, which is nocebo. And so if someone tells you, you know, that, you know, again, like you've, you're, you have bad hips or something like that, um, you will, it, it automatically lowers or reduces that person's ability to get better. Hmm. And it kind of lowers their own expectations for themselves. And I think as, as clinicians, it also does the same for us too. If we've kind of, you know, labeled a, a patient as having some sort of alignment issue, um, and they're not progressing at the rate that we want them to, um, a lot of times it comes back to, oh, well, that person has, has XYZ going on and, and so forth. So, yeah, so for me, I've kind of really focused more on a, on a low tolerance standpoint. And, you know, I think that when, when you look at, um, I think ultra running actually is a really, is a really good example of this, that, you know, just a very progressive overload of someone, uh, very, very slow uh, overload, but someone's going to get a lot stronger and their overall capacity to run, I think will, you know, it has historically been shown to really improve dramatically. And I think that when you look at what ultra runners can do, um, 
I think even a couple of years ago, I think some of the, the times that people run now is, is just mind blowing. And so, um, so yeah, so I think that when, when we explain things to, to the average patient, I think rather than talking to them about, you know, maybe what came up on an MRI, um, because they can get, you know, patients can get super fixated on a, I don't know, like a disc herniation yeah, yeah. or a labral tear or something like that. I think it's important to kind of keep in mind the overall context. So like a labral tear of your hip, for instance, um, you know, a recent study came out that found that 68% of all college athletes have an asymptomatic labral tear. 68%. 68%. So wow. um, that means that they don't, they have a labral tear and they don't even realize it. Yep. And so, um, so why is that? And then oftentimes what happens then is that maybe one of those athletes might get like a hip flexor strain or mm-hmm. something like that. And then of course in our healthcare system, they might go get an MRI. And sure enough, that labral tear shows up on this MRI scan, and they're told they have a labral tear, which is the reason why their hip hurts. Same and diagnosis, searching for pain. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, and then that patient, the athlete gets that labral tear in their head, and they get so fixated on that. And no matter what we do from a therapy standpoint, they're like, yeah, but I've got that labral tear, and it's always mm-hmm. going to be there. Crutch. It's always going to be there, and, and it's going to be something that might um, short circuit their ability to do their, you know, their exercises as hard as they normally would and, and so forth. Just, it's always in the back of their mind. So, yeah, so for me, I've kind of really focused on, like, you know, how can we build people up? And, and by looking at the demands of the tasks that they want to get to, and running's a, you know, for me, is my area. And when, when we look at running, um, you know, the, the amount of quadricep force that's required to run is, is pretty massive, and the amount of um, calf muscle force that's required to run is pretty massive. And so when we're looking at, you know, how can we prepare that athlete who's injured to get back to doing that activity of running, um, we have to really start thinking about how can we do the best strength and conditioning uh, that we can for this individual to, to strengthen up not just their muscle, but the connective tissue and the joint and the, the bone that that muscle is attached to. And, and the more that we do that, I think the better off that our patients are going to be, and they're going to have a more seamless and more durable return to their, their activity of choice, in this case, running. So speaking of that load tolerance thing, a, a, a notion that's, I guess I've been told, I'm not sure by whom, but yet the muscles adapt and strengthen at a at a faster rate than do the connective tissues, mm-hmm. and that that translates into some some risk of overuse when you're starting up again or starting something new. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think so. There's a really famous tendon researcher. Her name's Jill Cook. She's from Australia, and she really likes to say that you know you have a very smart muscle attached to a very dumb tendon, <laughs> and muscle adapts very quickly to load, and yeah. it, and it doesn't. If you've ever if you ever go, if you ever go to the gym and lift some weight, give yourself a couple of days of rest and you go back in and you're going to be able to lift a little bit more the next time you go in. And tendon and, and bone just doesn't adapt as quickly. So it's a little bit dumber. And so as a result, what can happen then is you can get a muscle that is hypertrophying or, or getting larger and getting stronger at a much faster rate than the tendon does. And so you often see things kind of break down around the second and third week. So right now, a lot of people are kind of starting to feel some aches and pains after they've started up their you know, New Year's resolution exercise programs. Right, right. And this is when a lot of injuries start to start to occur. And you see that also in the military, too, with basic combat training, that most injuries peak in the third week of basic combat training, like stress fractures and so forth. 
Um, the other the other area where you really see this happen a lot is in cross country with for the, with high school athletes. Okay. They come back after the summer. Maybe they haven't been training very consistently. They've had some summer vacations mixed in with their families and so forth, and they weren't doing their homework when it comes to running. And then they get and they show up. And they they you know, get back to practice and they show up for the first day and they start running. And then around the second and third week, that's typically when things like shin splints and stress fractures and knee pain tends to peak right around then. And that's just because their muscles have adapted in a much faster rate than things like bone and articular cartilage and and their tendons so let's let's actually press a little bit more on that kind of a time when people in this community and beyond are starting to think about you know maybe hanging up those skis the snow's melting out and i want to get back and uh, get back on the bike get back out running and um i know for me like those transition times are times where i I feel a little bit at risk because i'm still so excited about the new activity and the freshness of it and maybe it's the fact that, you know, the lungs are generally fit and the muscle memory comes back. But, yeah, those aches and pains, those overuse injuries, those happen. And uh, how do we avoid those? Like, what are some things that uh, routines or, or, or things we can do to, um, to prepare ourselves for those transitions from season to season? A new angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Chris Shook, Dean of the College of Business at the University of Montana, and you are listening to A New Angle. Yeah, I mean, you know, Missoula is kind of an interesting place in that, like, people seem to be fit year-round. Just their specificity of their fitness is maybe not necessarily what they want to be doing at the time. And so, uh, you know, you come out of, like, you know, the winter season and maybe you've been cross-country skiing a lot. And so you've got this, like, you know, super revved up cardiovascular system, but your, you know, your, your bones and your muscles are not really ready to go. So I think for me, one of the things that uh, is, is super important is to, to, you know, to be present in the moment and compare yourself to the runner you are today. Hold up. Where? I mean, I compare myself to my 29 year old (laughs) fit as a fiddle self every day, every step of every run. I'm comparing myself to that person that really maybe never even existed. I do the same thing. I, I, (laughs) I've, I've realized that when people ask me like, like my half marathon PR, I've I've found myself quoting the half marathon PR from 10 years ago, yeah, not the yeah, one that yeah. it really is today. So, yeah, no, I, I think that what we need to do is, you know, I think it, it, it's so important just to take stock of who you are and not compare yourself maybe to other people and not compare yourself to who you were, you know, 10 years ago or even, you know, a couple of months ago. And um, so the rut, which is a big running race here in town, as you know, or right. in, over in um, big sky. And that, so that's, that's such a great example. A lot of people base their entire year around that race. And so they, they build up to these, you know, it's a pretty, it's a big day. It's a big workout. Huge day. It's a huge day. And so for some folks they're, they, when they're training for that race, what is, what used to be a long run is now no longer a long run. And so in their head, they've redefined what a long run is. And so when they get back to running again, maybe in this, like in you know, February or March, um, they compare themselves to where they were at peak fitness mm-hmm. right before the rut or something like that. And then that's a good way to get themselves in trouble. And so, um, you know, the rut's a great race, and don't, don't get me wrong. But I have seen a lot of people that have done the rut that end up going on to getting some um, you know, some pretty persistent injuries that take a long time to get over for sure. 
Yeah, and it makes me think that you know, are there like good rules of thumb? I mean, I've heard the ten percent rule and, and and things like that. Like, don't ever add more than ten percent mileage week over week or something like that. Are there guidelines or practices that you could recommend, uh, not only for tracking this um, this load, but maybe doing things to space it out? Yeah, well, I, um, for me, I think one of the absolute best things that people can do is to use or you know, have like a really good strength and conditioning program. Okay. And, and the reason why I say that is because if you're, if you're doing a really good job of strength and conditioning right now, so and what I mean by that is uh, lifting heavy weight um, and not a lot of reps. And if you're, that means if you're going to be lifting a lot of weight, you can't do a lot of reps. So we're talking eight to 10 repetitions uh, per exercise. And, and I, you know, I bring that up because a lot of runners kind of have a bias towards thinking that they need to be training for endurance and doing a lot of high rep strength training. Um, but the reality of it is, is that articular cartilage and tendon and so forth just doesn't adapt as quickly to those high rep uh, kind of exercises. And, and the way I kind of you know, whenever I talk to runners, I'm like, look, if you want to do a high rep exercise, just go for a run. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's when it. you're in the gym, work really hard, lift heavy and so forth. And the reason why that's important is because what it does is that it conditions the tendons and so forth to tolerate the higher loads that you're going to maybe experience later on down the season. So it kind of almost inoculates, you know, yourself to some of the potential for, for overuse and, and, and so forth. Um, so this notion that you know, if I lift heavy, I'm going to bulk up. That's that's a fallacy. Well, uh, it depends. And if you're doing endurance uh, training at the same time that you're lifting heavy weights, you're there's this thing that's called interference, and you don't tend to gain as much muscle bulk. Um, you're still going to get stronger because there's a lot that goes into getting strong. Um, more so than just gaining muscle bulk, okay. um, for sure. But your tendons get stiffer, and a stiffer tendon is a healthier is definitely a healthier tendon. Your plantar fascia gets stiffer as well, and articular cartilage becomes healthier, and so forth. So much so that um, a really nice study came out recently, and what they did, they combined a whole bunch of strength and conditioning studies that looked at the effect of strength and conditioning on future risk of developing an overuse risk. I'm sorry, uh, some sort of overuse injury, and they found that a very consistent strength and conditioning program reduced the risk of overuse injury by about 50%. And so, wow. yeah, it's, it's really tremendous. And so when you, when you look at the, you know, that's probably the most important thing to do. And, and again, they were looking at lifting very heavy. And um, now in contrast, some of the things that they found in that same study that didn't seem to reduce risk of developing some sort of overuse injury was stretching. So stretching doesn't seem to really have that same effect. It's not that stretching's bad. But generally what I tell runners is that, look, if you're pressed for time, you should be doing some strength and conditioning. Okay. Maybe skip the stretching if you're, if you're pinched for time. If stretching makes you happy, then do it. But don't, don't do that at the expense of doing some basic strengthening exercises. And what I mean by that is doing some heavy calf raises, um, maybe some heavy lunges, heavy squats, exercises such as that. Nothing, nothing too complicated. I think just keep it very simple. Yeah, doing the simple exercise is better than not doing the complex one, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And as, you know, as far as you know, basic training practices too. I think the other things that we can do is, um, you know, be reasonable. I think yeah, there's that that ten percent rule has kind of been a little bit debunked. And what you're talking about is yeah. not increasing your your running volume or mileage per week more than ten percent from one week to the next. And the reason why it doesn't really seem to work very well is because it, it all depends. Yep. And so for like the new runner, um, you know, for instance, your research, your research is uh, showing that like the, the runner who's coming off the couch, um, they 
are there so those people are the most at risk of developing some sort of overuse injury. Sure. And in fact, the research is finding that if they run more than three kilometers in that first week, they have almost a double the risk of developing an overuse running injury than if wow. they didn't. And three kilometers is not very much. And that's, that's not much. No, that's basically a little more than a mile and a quarter, I think. Well, and, and this kind of <laughs> raises an issue that it just sort of like, kind of blew my mind the first time we started working together and you started helping me out with an injury. And you're asking how much I was walking. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm a runner. I'm not a walker. Like, why would I go uh-huh. out and walk? That's like, that's why I'm running. That's right. And, yeah. and, and you know, I, I, I've, I've heard you speak about the importance of integrating walking and its relationship to load tolerance. And also, you know, you've told me about how you integrated as a as a key part of your training, but also, you know, your rehab from intermittent niggles and such. Talk, mm-hmm. talk about walking and why it's so important. Yeah. So if you go out for a seven mile run, the average person takes about 10,000 steps. Uh, and that's on top of the number of steps they're taking during a given day. And so the average American walks about 5,000 steps per day, which is not very much. And I know a lot of times we hear this recommendation that we should do about 10,000 steps per day. But, um, and that's also the evidence behind that is a little bit fuzzy. But, but still, the average American is far below that. So if you're only walking 5,000 steps per day, which means you're taking, you're, and think about those as loading cycles. So you're loading your bones and your muscles and your articular cartilage, you know, 5,000 times per day. And then suddenly you layer on top of it, like another, maybe you go out for a five mile run or something like that. Say you do 5,000 additional steps. Well, congratulations. You just doubled your loading on your legs per day. And, and that is too much of a change. And so I think that when we're looking at maybe recovering from an injury um, or you're starting up at the beginning of a season, I think the best thing to do is just start going and doing some vigorous walking if you mm-hmm. haven't been already. Um, you know, I think that step counters can be super helpful with us too and uh, work on getting those steps up per day. Um, you know, start taking the dog for a little bit extra longer walk or, or something along those lines. But uh, we see this a lot in, in, in runners who have injuries and in that um, they get, you know, they get a little maybe a little depressed or, uh, or so forth because they can't do running. And so they end up spending a lot of time on the couch or so forth. And you have someone who goes from running, you know, maybe doing 15,000 steps a day down to maybe 3,000 or 4,000 steps per day. And then once the pain goes away is their, their injury kind of chills out a little bit, and they jump back into it and they might go back and do a three, five mile run. Which, Suddenly, you know, for a runner, that's Pretty short. Routine. Pretty short. It's very, it's very routine. But that's going to be a, a dramatic relative overload for that person. Yeah, yeah. And so you got to really build back up. And so, yeah, I think that, um, you know, so I think when you, when you look at the average, like, return to run program where someone's, like, walking for a minute uh, or walking for two minutes, running for a minute or something like that that's maybe 30 minutes long, that's still going to be about four or 5,000 steps. So generally I tell people that before you start doing a new running program, you should be you know, building yourself up to about walking for 40 minutes straight so you're ready to start doing that return to run program because otherwise it's going to be it's a, it's a big ask of your, of your system, particularly if you're, if you're an older individual who maybe hasn't um, had a, you know, a good, consistent history of exercise. Yeah, I wanted to touch on that. You recently published a paper on sort of the realities facing the aging athlete, the aging mm-hmm. runner, the master's runner. Um, you tell us about some of the key findings from that. It was a review piece, right? Yeah, it's just a review piece. And um, we're going to be doing some more work looking at how we can kind and of... just to be clear, like, Rich is at the tip of the spear in this field. I mean, you publish an academic paper, but it gets covered and picked up and extended by Runner's World and a lot of these top outlets. So, like, yeah. your work is 
is leading the discussion of, of what's best practice in this area. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, for, and I mean, really, for, for you know, just a review paper, is we basically just took a lot of the, the best literature that's out there and tried to put together a good kind of cohesive story as far as what happens. Uh, you know, as we age, and, and when, when you look at the older runner, the master's runner, which is a runner who's above the age of 40, um, one of the things that, there, there's some really interesting things that are, are that pretty consistently happen across individuals, and that's that we start to lose calf function, so our calf muscle becomes, mm. we, we, we tend to um, atrophy or we lose muscle bulk there a little bit quicker, lose, lose muscle force from our what calf if, muscles. What if you never had it? <laughs> yeah, well, then you've got a, you're starting at an even lower place, but, uh, but yeah, I have, I have, I have less, less to fall, I guess. Let's put <laughs> yeah. Well, so when, when, when you look at between the ages of 35 and 65, um, the average, uh, the average runner loses a little less than 1% of their push off power per year. Wow. And that is coming almost solely from loss of calf muscle function. Hmm. So, um, you know, we tend to think about running as a lot of times you think, oh, it's all about the, your, your glute muscles, your hip extensors and, and so forth. But the reality is, and, you know, unless you're sprinting, running is predominantly a calf exercise. Okay. And so about 50% of our muscle forces during running comes from our calf muscles. And, and so as a result, as we age, we start to, you know, we start to lose that push off ability and not coincidentally, the older athlete or the aging athlete, that's, that's where they tend to get their injuries. They tend to get their injuries. Uh, in the form of calf strains, uh, Achilles tendinopathy, which we used to call tendinitis, mm-hmm. uh, and plantar fasciopathy. And so those are, those are the kind of the main injuries that happen as we get older. The, uh, the younger athlete, the teenage athlete and so forth, they tend to get more medial tibial stress syndrome, also known as shin splints, or uh, they also tend to get more patellofemoral pain or anterior knee pain, runner's knee, whatever you want to call it. But um, the older athlete tends to they tend to start transitioning more into kind of more soft tissue injuries. Um, and, and so, yeah, so w- when you think about, like, what can we do to kind of uh, to kind of mitigate that risk, um, there are a couple different things. And, you know, a big one would be to do some strength training. And we know that, um, you know, the more you strength train, the, the heavier uh, that you're lifting weights, um, it starts to restore some of those, that capacity and that sure. calf musculature for sure. Just basic calf raises and just basic calf heavy. raises. It's heavy. You're saying heavy, so don't like think that going out and jumping rope or, you know, doing body weight calf raises Mm-mm. is the way through. The the best allocation of time is to load up the rack and go for it. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, if you're if you're going into the gym, uh, and you're just lifting, you know, some you grab like a five pound dumbbell or something like that, uh, you know, and, and you're lifting it kind of slow and so forth. You probably got a better workout walking into the gym that day. And yeah. so, yeah, you should now grant that might be where you're starting off, but you should really aim to try to get that weight up quite a bit higher. And, um, are and there you know, any rules of thumb? Like your target should be some percentage of body weight, a certain number it, of times. Or yeah. It ends up being right around 35 30 to 35% of your body weight. Per leg, like an isolated one, yeah, one so you, leg. So you're doing a one-legged calf raise, and you're holding maybe 30% of your body weight in your hand. That, of course, that's going to take some time to get up to that point. For sure. Yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah, you should be looking at getting up to there. And, um, 
you know, so the, so the other thing too that we see um, as as people age is they tend to slow down, and I think we all know that. And again, that comes a lot of that comes from our our reduced push off sure. force that we're getting from our calf muscles and and so forth. Um, but there's a little bit of the chicken or the egg there too, because you know as we age, there's some kind of some behavioral things that occur in the olding or in the the, um, the uh, um, aging runner, and that's that we tend to maybe not you know train as consistently. Mm-hmm. Maybe we get kind of busy and life stress. Life stress all these other things yeah and you start doing all of your runs at the same speed and so then as a result you kind of lose that pep and so that's another thing that the aging runner can do is they can add some speed work and and maybe go to the weekly track workout sure or, go, or like hill repeats are excellent because um, when you do hill repeats it's it's a kind of a form of it's like a low-grade form of strength training and it really emphasizes your calf musculature uh, for sure. So, uh, and again, start off kind of easy with that, but, um, but, you know, all those things can kind of lead into kind of our kind of slow decline in running speed. The other thing that happens too, is that as we age, unfortunately, we are a little bit more prone to injury. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, when you get injured, you kind of lose that consistency, that, that whole consistency of training. Yeah. And, um, so I think that anything you can do to kind of, you know, really work on not making rapid changes in your training load uh, can be super helpful also as far as reducing your risk of, of having an injury and missing some significant training time. And um, I know for me, I, I, was, I never got injured until, um, you know, my late 30s. And I, I, like, I never missed training time. And now it's something I got to be a little bit more careful about. I got to watch my training loads a little bit more carefully. Yeah, absolutely. You know, your sleep isn't as good. You got a kid in the mix, like all, all these different dynamics that are additional stressors. I mean, that's one thing too, that, you know, a little off topic, but, you know, the, the, the role that general life stress plays in our recovery. Mm-hmm. We all, I think the default sort of thinking for an athlete is that, you know, all of your stress is your athletic stress. Right. And this is my running volume and this is how many miles and the paces and all that. And you don't think, well, oh, yeah, this morning I had to take my mom to the airport at four o'clock in the morning or whatever. And I, I slept a lot less like, or I had a really stressful day at the office. And, you know, those sorts of things, I think, particularly for the aging athlete, become uh, so much more important mm-hmm. and more common, I guess. Yeah, I mean, our sleep quality declines as we age. And um, and when we're sleeping, that's when we're recovering. And yeah. if you're not recovering, uh, you're not rebuilding yourself after your recent, mm-hmm. you know, hard effort. And so... So you're not uh, getting the benefit of your training and you're putting yourself at risk for injury. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, again, uh, the military is a great... It's a great place where they've, 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 you know, they don't get a lot of sleep, particularly during basic combat training. Yeah, not a lot of choice. And um, so the, uh, the Israeli military has done some work in this area because they've had a lot of trouble with stress fractures and mm. so forth. And they've, they've been able to reduce their stress fracture occurrence by about 50% wow. by enforcing six to seven hours of sleep per night, which doesn't sound like a lot to some people, but when you're talking about basic combat training, that is a lot. Uh, and as far as reducing some of the sleep disturbances, waking people up in the middle of the night and stuff like that. So sleep really seems to matter. And they didn't do really anything else other than just enforce some sleep. Say, look, you've got to be getting that six to seven hours of sleep per night. So it, it does make a big difference. And when you look at adolescent athletes too, uh, sleep disturbances for them also increases the risk of, of overuse injuries as well. Mm-hmm. So, Rich, I want to transition here to uh, kind of a hot topic in an area where you've sort of not, not necessarily waited, but leaned into some controversy. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you, know, you mentioned Born to Run. 
and your advisor Irene and, and Dan Lieberman up at Harvard and and this notion of barefoot running and minimalist shoes and, and you know and, and whatever just 2005 I think when that book came out it just led to this proliferation of all these kinds of running shoes and a whole practice about you know matching up sort of biomechanics of the runner to the attributes of a shoe mm-hmm. and um in some ways, that's been an interesting period because it's led to a proliferation of types of different running shoes and a lot better selection for the customer. Y- yet at the same time, I don't know if the customer is necessarily better off. So talk a little bit about the running shoe industry and your recent yeah. findings on the efficacy of various shoes. Yeah, so uh, you know, back when Born to Run came out, one of the things that it was kind of really pushing was this idea that, like, you know, we are born to run, and that you know that we shouldn't be wearing this the kind of typical running shoe that you can buy at a, you know, a running shoe store or like your big box stores or whatever at the time. Well, and, and in that book, I mean, it was kind of the thesis that the running shoe industry was corrupt in yeah. a way, right? I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that those are your words, but that was part of the narrative that McDougal was putting out there. Yeah, I, mean, I think it was a little bit, uh, I mean, I, I, in my opinion, I thought it was maybe a little much as far as when it came down to the corrupt part sure. of it, because, you know, they're, they're just trying to do the best job that they can, you know, and they're, they're looking at the how, you know, the whole foot functions and so forth. And, you know, the idea, you know, at the time was that if your foot pronated a lot, or if your foot rolled in, became more flat, then it kind of increased your risk of developing an overuse injury. And so the running shoe industry <clears throat> had designed like running shoes that would really try to control that motion of the foot. Um, but the problem was, is that running injury rates didn't really change once these shoes came onto the market. And so at the time, there was a lot of emphasis on matching up shoe type to the person's foot shape. And so if you had like a, if you had a high arch, you got more of a cushioned shoe. If you had a low arch, you got more of a motion control type shoe. Uh, and again, it didn't really seem to make much difference. So this book came along and at the same time, it kind of coincided with some research coming out of our lab and some other labs. And we were looking at like when, you, when you're running, if you run in less of a shoe, like a minimalist type shoe or even barefoot, what does it do? And so when, when you run in a minimalist shoe, and it all depends, um, you know, at the time it was really thought that like it would, you would kind of naturally soften, soften how hard you're hitting the ground right, because right. it would hurt your heel because you don't have as much cushion there and so forth. But, um, you know, unfortunately that hasn't really, you know, hasn't really come out so much in the literature. The science, the science is, is saying that if you run in a minimalist shoe, you actually hit the ground harder. Your mm. impacts go up. And, you know, and I think a lot of it is, is that for some of us, we've been running in cushioned shoes for 15, 20 years, and suddenly you take away that cushion, your nervous system, your how we control the way we run is not suddenly going to change and say, whoa, I'm going to start running very soft because um, you don't have the musculature to do that. And so as a result, a lot of people ended up getting calf strains and you know, plantar fasciopathy or fasciitis, however you want to call it, and, and some stress fractures in their feet because they're, those connective tissues weren't really designed for that. So injury rates actually went up after people started running more minimalist-type shoes. Um, and as a result, the minimalist shoe boom kind of went away. And in fact, now 0.8% of the shoe market are minimalist shoes, so mm-hmm. hardly anybody. And how is that? Def- is there 
there must be a threshold when a shoe becomes minimalist as far as like the stack height or the amount of cushion. Yeah, so or... we can you can look at a couple of different attributes with shoes. You can look at stack height, which is just how much cushion there is. Um, there's this idea of heel to toe drop, um, which is basically just like it sounds. It's how much cushion you have underneath your heel and how much cushion you have underneath your, your toes and so forth. Um, how much how flexible the shoe is and so forth. So there's is a kind of a, a continuum that you can look at on that. And there's still a lot of kind of disagreement in my field on like how you can really classify stuff. It seems like the heel to toe drop, as much as you will hear that discussed a lot, that doesn't seem to make that much difference in running mechanics. Okay. And so, um, and in fact, if you go to, um, to, you know, to the extreme of like a zero drop shoe, that can actually increase loads on your Achilles tendon and so forth and can kind of set us up for more issues with Achilles tendinopathy and, and, and so forth. But um, so yeah, so when, when we when we think about running shoes, um, it, it seems like the pendulum swung almost too far. Like it went from yeah, like most things do, like most things do exactly. And so then it's kind of swung back again. And now we've got maximalist shoes, and so we've got these Hoka type shoes that have like it's like running on pillows. And so um, and so the the people that are still in the minimalist shoe camp are kind of kind of you know villainizing these maximalist shoes. And and there are a lot of people out there that run in these maximalist these Hoka shoes. And when you think about Missoula and the trail running community here, you see a lot of people running their maximal shoes. And for me, I don't know. I'm like, how can you argue with that? And how can you argue with the fact that people are running in these shoes? They look happy. And and I can't, who am I to sit here and say, no, I'm sorry, you're not doing what you were evolved to do. You're running with this big giant piece of foam strapped to the bottom of your foot. But um, for a lot of people that I've run into, uh, just clinically and just also out on runs and so forth, uh, some people have told me that, like, you know, look, they really struggled with injuries until this type of shoe came along. Um, but then even then, when you look at the literature behind those maximalist type shoes, they also don't seem to really reduce injury risk either. Mm. So it yeah. almost seems like whichever paradigm you're coming from, whether it be a minimalist type shoe or the, what we call traditional type shoes or maximalist shoes, they don't seem to have any effect on reducing injury risk. And so that was what we wrote in this paper was like, look, everybody's coming out with these new paradigms. And at the end of the day, shoes have not had really any impact on a running injury risk. And so what you probably should do is just go pick a shoe that feels most comfortable to you, makes you happy, buy it, maybe buy another one that's somewhat similar to it, and go run in those shoes, maybe alternating those shoes from day to day, because that does seem to make a bit of a difference. If you have two somewhat similar shoes and kind of rotate them from one day to the next, that does seem to reduce your injury risk. But all, you know, basically the overall type of shoe that you're running in doesn't seem to make much difference. It seems to be more about like, you know, if you're making maybe not so smart decisions on deciding if you've been, you decide that, hey, today I think I'm going to go run for three hours, even though I've only been, the longest run I've done in the last six months has been an hour and a half or an hour or something like that. Those things, that's what gets you injured, not so much what you're putting on your feet. Imagine that. I mean, yet another piece of common sense advice, pick the shoe that's most comfortable. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. And and so so for you, that might be a different shoe than for me. Sure. So for me to sit here and say, Justin, you should be running in this shoe. Yeah. Um, I think it's the right shoe for you. Um, it's not like it's not really my place to do that. The best thing for you to do is find a shoe that fits you really well. Um, go for a run in it. If it feels good, if it feels natural to you, it doesn't if it doesn't feel like you need to break it in, that's probably the best shoe for you. Great rule of thumb. And Rich, that seems like a, a great way to end it. I, I really admire just the clarity and wisdom and simplicity is the wrong word. Elegant in, in the recommendations you've, you've brought to, to me over our time as, as friends and colleagues, but also now to our listeners, and I appreciate that. 
It's great to have you here doing your work at the University of Montana. Great to have you and your wife as part of the community. And uh, thanks for coming on the pod and sharing some of your wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rich. I certainly did. And so much of his wisdom is, um, you know, it's it, it makes a ton of sense and it's stuff that we, we all should be doing. So um, take it to heart. Make the changes, and uh, here's to a healthy spring. Anyway, next week, we shift gears and speak with Chris Wright. Chris is a graduate of the University of Montana College of Business, and he is a product marketing manager at Google. He's been at Google since 2003, so he's seen a lot happen in that company. And he just recently launched his own podcast. It's called Try the Podcast. Pretty interesting name, pretty interesting podcast, pretty interesting guy. Check him out next week. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. By now, you all know that they're big and they pretty much sell everything electrical you would ever need. But what you might not know is that they hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about job opportunities at CED, visit cedcareers.com. It's a great website name. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Comzar, Elizabeth Willie, Executive Producer, Stefan Borsum. Producer, Aidan Morton, and interns, Aspen Runkle, Max Gibson, and Ellie Hanasek. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Before we go, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.